You're listening to Bridge the Gap Season 4, a podcast dedicated to inform, educate, and influence the future of housing and services for seniors. This podcast is powered by supporting partners Propel Insurance, Inquire, LTC REIT, The Bridge Group Construction, and Salinity. Learn more at btgvoice.com. Welcome to Bridge the Gap Podcast, the Senior Living Podcast with Josh and Lucas, a great, exciting show on today with a good friend of ours, Michelle Reese Clark. Welcome to the program. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Yes, great to see you. You know, you are a BTG ambassador, which is really awesome. We've had fun the last probably year or so getting to know you and a handful, a dozen or so of other ambassadors as we've created relationships and helped to, you know, pursue our mission here at Bridge the Gap, which is inform, educate, and influence. We appreciate that. And we also saw you at the VIP event in Nashville. How did you uh, like that? It was great to see everyone. It's been a really long time since I've seen many of my friends in the industry. So that was absolutely fabulous to, to get to see them and catch up and see how they were doing. So it was, it was great. You know, I consider you kind of a jack of all trades. You've got uh, an architecture and design background, and that's probably, you know, many people know you from that arena. Um, you're really an expert in that field. Um, but obviously, you've got a lot more gears because now you're on the capital side with AIM Capital, and you're getting to kind of spread your wings somewhat and see it from a different lens, so to speak. Right now, we are seeing a big shift in the marketplace with different portfolios selling. You know, you see some of the big REITs or some of the big operators. They're transitioning some of that stuff around. There's some value-add opportunities. There's uh, challenges with ground up. I mean, the whole marketplace is just uh, filled with different challenges, which creates a ton of opportunities. Speak to us now from this new lens that you're looking through from the capital side. What are you seeing happen in the deal markets? Well, there's a lot of activity right now. I think on the construction side, there's several projects that we're looking at that are shovel ready or close to it because last year, a, a lot of the capital markets just were quiet. If uh, a, a bank or private debt group didn't already have a long-term relationship with a potential developer that they needed to be successful because they already had money invested in them, they just weren't doing transactions. And so now what we're seeing is everyone's catching up there. They need to do some deal flow. They, uh, if you're on the equity side, they need to, you know, invest if you're on the debt side they need to put money out because they've brought too much money in so we're seeing a lot of action and i think the the fear of the construction costs is becoming a little bit more comfortable i think we just realize that this is the situation i mean there are still issues with getting materials and products but that's not as big of a deal as i think when you're looking far out on the uh, the refinance or um, other transactions where people are selling product, you know, we're not participating as much in that. I know that there are some transactions going on. Some people are getting in and out of the skilled nursing space. Some people have found that they, you know, maybe they own too many properties, so they, you know, they need to uh, address that. But we're mostly focusing on the construction side right now because there's a lot of interest in construction. 
So Michelle, um, on the new construction front, uh, as you're now coming from a very, I would say, eclectic background, you have a wide array of experiences that have prepared you for now entering the, the capital side of our industry. What are some things that might be either changing or have changed or, or you see on the horizon that operators or developers that are wanting to do new construction, they need to be ready to check the, the underwriting boxes to get these deals done. What are you seeing changing in that front? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if there's been as many changes, but I think things are becoming more clear. There's been instances in the past where people have been funded that didn't bring a strong operator with them. They didn't have a third party market study done. They didn't have a lot of these things that are really important for us to have and be able to underwrite a project. And now without that, you're, you just cannot get financed. I, I had this conversation in fact with an organization yesterday that has several really great projects that they have not, in, they haven't gotten a third party market study. They did their own internal one which is great, but that's like me going and doing my internal one, which I do on every single project before we consider it. I have my own um, places I go to see what the, the market looks like, what the census in the area is, what the potential long-term are. But without having that strong operator that has extensive experience, not just with that product type, but sometimes even in the state that you're working in, depending upon the licensed care that you're considering, uh, independent living and active adult clearly is a little bit easier to, to deal with as far as that's concerned. I mean, still you want a good operator that shows that they can fill the building in an appropriate amount of time. But as far as the license care is concerned, that is very, very specific to that particular area. So having that operator that is a good partner and has experience in that space and has shown that during COVID, they've been able to stay full or at least um, bring their census up once we had more control over the vaccine and uh, what was going on with the um, with COVID over time. So right now we're looking at groups that have been able to get their census up and AL memory care to, you know, the 80s at least. Um, unfortunately, some people aren't there, but that's really what we'd look for. Um, independent living honestly stayed pretty steady during COVID and during 20 and into 21, especially because I think people were finding that they didn't want to be in their home anymore and they wanted to go and, and move in. So you know, that's a very easy product for us to finance. The only thing right now that we are not looking at is standalone memory care. We just don't have uh, debt sources that are interested in standalone memory care at this point. Well, that's really interesting. So let's touch a little bit on the different sectors. Um, you mentioned independent assisted memory care, and I think you might've even touched on the active adult, that kind of mm -hmm. 55 plus product yeah. type. Um, you did mention that memory care, there's not a high level of interest um, maybe with you guys or maybe the industry in general. Touch on that a little bit. What are some of the reasons why people are maybe not as interested in, in chasing after the, the freestanding memory care product right now? So freestanding memory care has always been a tricky product. Uh, and the reason why is generally by the time somebody moves in, you know, they're a lot farther down the path of having some kind of dementia, which means that their average length of stay is between 18 to 24 months. 
So your, your marketing is very, very important. And during a time of sickness, regardless of whether or not it's COVID or influenza, which we deal with on an annual basis, that particular demographic is not going to be able to wear a mask. You know, the, you can't keep them from going up and giving each other hugs or, you know, interacting with each other. So it's, it's a much harder group of individuals to help when there's something going on that could potentially cause them to become ill. So the census in a lot of those standalone memory cares hasn't been very great. And I think it's the COVID lens has made people even more nervous about the long-term um, census of those buildings um, within their portfolios. So it's not that people are not interested in memory care, but they're just not interested in the memory care on its own. Yeah. So um, memory care on its own, do you see it being, um, well, let me back up. So obviously there's such a growing, I guess, need for memory Correct. care as more and more people are developing different types of dementias, Alzheimer's, um, but you you have your challenges. It's a, it's a difficult um, group. Uh, it's a different, difficult diagnosis. It's a difficult population to provide care for there's higher turnover uh, as far as unit turnover, as far as the residents are waiting longer to move in and then they're there for shorter amounts of time. So all of that makes sense. But with the growing demand, um, you mentioned that maybe uh, one of the options for those developers out there that are trying to meet uh, the needs of the population, are you saying that they're combining that with assisted living and or independent living product? Or what do you see as the alternative to, to meet the growing needs for that population? Generally, the most popular product to uh, provide capital for is when you have all three products together, independent living, assisted living, and memory care. And on the design side, where I come from, if you actually really do the numbers properly and you think through um, the, the long-term um, life of the building, if you build the right number of AL memory care with your independent living, after probably the second term of those two products, AL memory care, uh, the independent living will continually supply enough people to fill your AL memory care. The first couple of rounds, because you, you, you fill that building about a third every year after you fill it the first time. Um, after, you know, once you get through those first two rounds, it, it's just really easy to keep the census up or easier. Let's just put it that way. Um, and also you're sharing a lot of the expenses among all three areas. So you only have to have one commercial kitchen versus if I was standalone memory care with 30 to 60 beds, because you really don't want to go too large with those, you're having to support that kitchen on its own, which has probably 30 employees that you have to support. And then you think about the number of employees, if you do memory care uh, and you look at the ratio that you want to have for your memory care of like one to four, one to five, one to six at the most of you know staff to uh, resident ratio, your, your costs just go up ex exponentially. So by having independent living and assisted living there, you're um, being able to pass some of those costs along. Um, on the operation side and on the construction side at the beginning to those other areas. So in uh, you obviously have a lot of background um, in design 
and understanding even how the operations work in senior care, which has uniquely prepared you to to provide great great insight to your your company as a capital provider. Do you see that the design, the physical plant, uh, is a growing discussion and a topic among capital providers where they're really evaluating that, or is this still just looking at the numbers on paper, or are there things that they're looking for in this kind of COVID or post-COVID era, whatever era we're in, that now the design of the building is being more um, kind of looked at and considered when funding a model, or does that matter at all? I do think it matters. I, I think that the, um, even more today, the whole team, the contractor, the architect, everyone that's involved has to have experience. And then on the building, as far as it's, you know, the building itself, you know, we started this industry as a clinical model. It was just an extension of hospitals starting off. And so it looked like a hospital with these long hallways and it was very expensive to operate and it wasn't really resident focused. And Greenhouse changed that a long time ago and we're still seeing improvements as you know time goes by. But what we do know is that if the building is designed right, uh, you have a higher yield because there's less staff requirements because I don't have as much um, waste of someone walking from one end to the other of a building. The building itself is more efficient. And I also know that I have higher staff retention because the staff has a more, they're spending more time actually caregiving and less time rolling someone around in a wheelchair, which in the old clinical kind of K model that we're all familiar with, um, eventually someone that is walking will not be walking because it takes so long to walk them down that long 150 foot hallway that they just put them in a wheelchair and eventually they don't have the ability to walk. Whereas now that we've figured these things out and we've created um, the neighborhood solutions for especially AL memory care, um, the the distances are so much shorter that the residents are, are, thriving. In, in fact, they, they live there longer than they, they have in the past. So I think the, the people that look at underwriting projects these days are a lot more in tune with what the product needs to look like. And that's one of the challenges when people are looking to sell some of the existing product that's available on the market. It's really hard to convert that to a high quality building that can be run efficiently. And so in a lot of cases, it's almost better to start over than it is to try to um, rehab a building that has a design that's so hard to operate and so expensive to operate that the, the yield is much lower. So I, I do think that funding sources are a lot more sophisticated than they were previously because they've seen the value add of a properly designed building. So one more question kind of relating to wh- what models, I guess, that the the dollars are chasing, for lack mm-hmm. of a better term. One of the things that um, is seems to be happening is, and it maybe is following similar logic to why maybe it's not as easily uh, funded of a model like memory care, maybe like it used to be the freestanding memory care. Do you find that a lot of existing operators or developers, owners, 
are moving downstream in the continuum and, and trying to get the higher functioning residents at more of the entry point, like moving into active adult or independent living that had traditionally been mostly assisted living memory care? Is that, is that what you're seeing or is that not accurate? That's actually a great question. So on the funding side, we have groups that are only interested in active adults, maybe independent living. And then we have groups that are only interested in independent living if there's an assisted living and memory care component. So it really depends on what their comfort level is and what their portfolio consists of. And if they're on the acute side, which some REITs and some ownerships and some banks are more akin to, then that's what they're going to be interested in funding. And same on the equity side. I have family offices that are only interested in that. And I have family offices that are like, I am so nervous about something that's licensed. I really just want to be in that active adult and independent living space. And those individuals tend to be ones that one either have never been in that or coming from maybe a multifamily background, or they invested in one that maybe wasn't the right team and didn't get licensed quickly or never did get licensed and had to be purposed, even though it was purpose built, had to be the purpose had to change. And that does happen. If, if something is not appropriately designed and built and doesn't meet all the regulations within that um, state and community, it, it can't open. So there, I, I don't think there's people moving away from one thing or other. It's just they have a preference. I do know that those of us that have been in the space for a long time realize that you know, assisted living looks like the skilled nursing of before as far as the resident um, demographic. And independent living is looking more and more like assisted living as it ages in place. And so the, in, the individual that would have been looking to move into independent living walks into that building and said, these are not my people. And so that active adult product is really filling a need. And it's been around for a long time. It just hasn't been as common in, in the senior housing communities. And, but I do think that you're going to see more and more um, of the CCRCs putting in a, a new product. And whether or not they call it active adult or they call it independent living light or whatever they call it, it's a product intended for the group that they use to capture for independent living because of the fact that as these products have aged in place, and honestly, the person who's active really doesn't need three meals a day, you know, and they don't want to pay for that and they don't want to necessarily eat in the dining room. They want to go out to eat. And that independent living model was, was really packaged around uh, making money off of the, um, the food service is because there's a cost there. Once you put that kitchen in and once you hire all those employees, you have to pass that cost off. So I do think that there's a, a great need for that product for a variety of reasons. And but it is interesting on the funding side that some people just really have a comfort level with one product or or another, you don't really see groups that do both. Interesting. So Lucas, we've talked about these um, topics in a variety of different ways on our show uh, throughout the years, but it's always interesting. We talk about, um, you know, the importance of having the right team, regardless of what care type or whether you're new construction or rehabbing. And, you know, this conversation kind of validates that. And I think it's, it's very interesting um, with the challenges that come from these, I would say, outside factors like uh, the economy and the environment and things that are happening to senior living and, and around us. And, and you see senior living operators, developers, owners 
adapting and changing, it creates new opportunities. And it also is, you know, probably going to create some gaps in the market that someone's going to have to figure out how to fill. So, um, you know, with that change, um, you know, we can choose to uh, be frightened by that, or we can choose to be excited at the opportunities and try to create uh, new environments, exciting environments and opportunities for this aging population that we serve. Um, this has been a great conversation, Michelle. Uh, and I know our listeners are going to love to connect with you. Yes, yes, well, I, totally. I appreciate it. Well, and Josh, I couldn't agree with you more. And I would say if you're listening right now and maybe you are a college student, we do have a contingency of college students that listen to us, um, or you're, you know, you're working in some capacity and you're dipping in to bridge the gap to check out what is happening in the kind of B2B space of senior housing. Um, these challenges, like Josh said, create opportunities. We need some smart people to come into this industry to help solve these issues. And you will never find a more rewarding place to work around the best people you can find. So we highly encourage you to continue to lean in to bridge the gap to learn more about the senior housing industry from people like Michelle. Michelle, thanks for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you again. We'll put all your contact information in the show notes. And thanks to all of our listeners for listening to another great episode of Bridge the Gap. Thanks for listening to Bridge the Gap podcast with hosts Josh Crisp and Lucas McCurdy. If you are informed, educated, or influenced by this episode, we want to know. Leave a comment on social media or contact us in the show notes. Powered by supporting partners, Propel Insurance, Inquire, LTC REIT, The Bridge Group Construction, and Salinity. Learn more at btgvoice.com.